Welcome to the Whose Body Is It podcast. I'm your host, Isabella Melvin. Today, I'm joined by Amy Ichikawa, one of the founders of Women to Women, a nonprofit organization providing reentry services, parole hearing prep, and advocacy for the safety and dignity of incarcerated women in California. Amy shares her eye-opening experience being incarcerated for five years and reintegrating back into society after enduring incredible amounts of abuse and harassment by correctional officers. She discusses the cultural differences between men and women's prisons, the numerous dangers of SB 132, also known as the Transgender Respect Agency and Dignity Act. Amy notes how her coercion to get vaccinated in prison is emblematic of the current global situation and encourages others to have one-on-one intimate conversations about these issues, not only for the sake of incarcerated women, but also for the protection of women everywhere against impending erasure and further dehumanization. If you are moved by Amy's story and the work that she is doing along with her co-founders at Woman to Woman, you can make a financial donation. That link is in the show notes. Where does your story begin with you know, the journey that you're, that you're on now and the work that you're doing now? It starts very much like every other woman that I ran into uh, during my incarceration with a man. I, was, I, I had a, a good job, benefits, a couple cars, I had my own place, and I just ran into somebody and automatically knew this was going to be a wild ride. And Within six months, I was arrested and looking at life in prison. Uh, I think my first deal was like 25 to life. So I had never been arrested before. Uh, my my dad was an active duty sheriff at the time of my arrest, which attributes greatly to um, my issues with authority. And, and being kind of a square, I always felt like I had to try a lot harder. Um, I had to uh, put in a lot more work in order to gain stripes in my head. It, it was very made up, but it, it, it made me push harder, be extra, go for the gusto. Um, and I was, I mean, I was, I don't want to uh, downplay it, but I was selling, selling um, drugs. It was 2009. I, I, I was doing that on the side. It wasn't a full-time, full-time job. But the gas prices were so high in 2009, I was like, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and do this. And it was just a small time thing. It wasn't, again, not to downplay the significance of that, but it, it wasn't something that I was trying to get rich off or be a millionaire with. And it just turned, it snowballed. It turned into something very not what it started out as. And... Uh, there was a, a young lady who owed my co-defendant $20 and one night we saw her in the street and he um, said she owes me $20 and I said well that's that's okay it's $20 you know and um, I'd been giving him a hard time about 
you know, his, his inability to collect. So this is what the example he was going to use. And he made an example. He grabbed her and it happened really fast. And I had, but not fast enough that I didn't have an opportunity to, to like stop. But that's not, that's just not how my brain worked. I, he threw the gun and I grabbed it, put it in my waistband and I was driving. Uh, so at that point it's, it's, it's kidnapping. When you grab somebody and throw them in your car, it's, it's kidnapping. Um, and I don't know how long we drove around for. It was like really late at night. And over the, the course of the evening, I, I didn't even know where we were because it was scary for me too. At one point I, he was out of the car and I told her, this is really scary. I don't know what's happening. Um, between you and I, I'll make sure you get home safe. I, I don't know what's, what's going to happen, but I'm not going to let anything happen. You know, we're, we're going to get home safely. So he gets back in the car and she's freaking out. And I knew in order to, to cover my tracks and make sure that there wasn't um, any inkling that I had, you know, done that contract with her, I had a puncher. So I cracked her and I felt so bad because she was really scared. I was, it was a really scary situation. And, uh, you know, I've never, I had never hit anybody before in my life. I wasn't a generally violent person in this, this one night, uh, changed everything. He took her out of the car and, you know, within seconds, I look in the rear view mirror and she's, she's like on her knees execution style. And I, what is happening? So I run out and the gun misfires. So that's when I was like, all right, this is our, this is it. This is it. This is it. Let's go home. This is like, this is, this is way, this is, we're done. So she gets back in the car, take her home. Then he uh, wasn't really satisfied. I, I was given the instructions, you know, go beat her up. So I'm like, oh man, are you kidding me? But at this point, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling that I'm in danger too. So I'm trying to explain to her, this is, you know, sorry. Um, but I, I, I did have to beat her up. I didn't have to, I chose to. Um, and then I dropped her off at home, uh, which was just around the corner from his residence. So it, it was a nightmare and I, it, I still haven't really processed how real that is, how that really happened. And then at that point I said, we got to get out of here. This was a heinous crime that was committed. We have to leave. And then the entire police department came because there were, there were witnesses. It was, it, it's not too hard to find a large Asian woman, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, they got us. Um, and still, it wasn't. I wasn't processing any of it. I was still thinking, "Oh, it's just assault. It's it's just assault with a, a with a gun possession. This isn't. I have to go to work in the morning." I was totally mm. not dealing with reality. It wasn't. I had no concept of the fact that this was way more than that. So I, I'm being questioned. We're being interrogated, and uh, they're like, "Who is this guy? Because he said he doesn't know who you are." So, no, this is, this is, this isn't, 
happening. So my sense of reality is, is totally um, off at this point. Um, they tell me this is, you have to tell us what happened because this, this guy says he has no, he's never met you before. He doesn't know who you are. And I said, well, can we just deal with, with the issue at hand because they have to go to work in a few minutes. They're like, you're not going to work. You're never going home. You're not doing, you're, you're not leaving. I can wrap my mind around it. What do you mean? They said, this is, these are your charges. And the list just kept getting longer and longer. And then they found a picture of my dad and I in my phone and they knew they recognized him. So that's when they got me. They said, you're not going to, is this your dad? Yeah. Well, you're not going to see him ever again. And I said, okay, what do you want? What do you want from me? So that's when I said, yeah, I, I beat this girl up. So I, I, I pretty much told him, I told him myself and, um, and it's, it was a wrap from there. My, as soon as, as my parents got an opportunity, well, not my parents, my dad got a chance to come up and see me. He said, how many episodes of Cops have we watched together? How many episodes of the first 48 have we watched together? What made you do that? And I was like, it was because I, they said I was never going to see you again. And how old were you? I was late bloomer. <laughs> I was, I had just turned 25. I think it was my, um, it was four days after my 25th birthday. So they, they were very curious too of why I would start such a ridiculous life of crime at 25 um, and how I had no record up to that point because that wasn't, that wasn't me at all. That's definitely not something that I would have um, normally participated in had it not been for the relationship that I thought I was in. So it just got, it got more interesting from there. Um, they set our bail pretty high. It was 2.5 million each because it was, um, I think it's a million per charge that carries life, a potential life sentence. Even at our first arraignment, I was asked, well, are you going to post bail? Or is somebody going to post bail for us? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I don't think anybody is going to post bail at all. And mind you, I had never been arrested before. The only time I had been in the courts was when I went to work with my dad. So this was surreal. I couldn't even understand how serious this was. And then they put me in protective custody because my dad was still working. So then I was really freaking out because I didn't want to be, you know, PC. Looking back, I realized it was, it, it was, it was needed. Um, I mean, at least for my dad's peace of mind. So when you say protective custody, that means once you were what before like a trial or this was after when you were already incarcerated that you had this kind of, I think it was 24 hours after my arrest, the jail put me in protective custody. Okay. They segregated me and put me in like a completely isolated part of lockup. But then when you go to state prison, you're just you're the same as everybody else. Nobody has, nobody is anything in there but a number. So, but I just jumped from one abusive situation to the next. Immediately after that, even even in county jail, it was the same kind of situations where I was. Uh, it was the financial abuse, the 
and I was so easily, um, I don't want to say brainwashed. Well, yeah, I think brainwashed. Um, I was a mark, you know, people who are skilled and have been in the system and know how to spot somebody that's going to be a good come up and profitable. It's, it's quite clear. And that happened again and again and again, because I always just thought, oh, this is my friend, mm. my friend, we're going to be friends. But that going back, going into, to the jail situation, it was so eye-opening. It was so um, hard to imagine anybody who's been through that to have any sense of self-worth or value their body for anything at all. Because you get in there and you're you're just moved around like like not like not like people, not like you would move people, just objects. Uh, there, there's even a lawsuit. There was a lawsuit for excessive strip searches. They were strip searching people out like twice as often as they were supposed to. And it was in public areas. So there's chain link fences and it's kind of like a parking garage. And they would put 25 women on either side and have us all strip out completely naked and there's you know it's it's visible for from staff men uh from to each other it's 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 i still can't fully explain it because it's it's unreal to think i was this was normalized in my head you know this is something that that i became accustomed to and knew this is just how they treat criminals this is how it's supposed to be but after um, being home for eight years now, that's so not normal. It's not normal at all. But that's the conditioning that starts early so that by the time you get to prison, you just, it's only gonna take a little bit to break you unless you're very strong-willed. And that's, that doesn't happen that often. But that, that, those situations, the strip outs, the, the, that was just affirmation that I was worthless, that, that it's, it's a wrap. Your societal value is gone. Uh, and, and I was logging all this stuff, trying to make sure I remembered because I wanted to, to make sure that, that I didn't forget if I wigged out or, or if I went crazy or something there, that I would be able to, to express this at some point. Um, because I, I kept thinking it was kind of like a science project. That that was a, a something that kept me um, that kept me going through the years. This is a sociological experiment. I'm just gathering information. Wow. That was kind of my disassociative little playground. But it's wild the things that happen in there that nobody really talks about, and, and a lot of us that have been in the situation don't even realize that, that it needs to be talked about or that it's it was that traumatic for us I don't I didn't even realize how serious it was until I was telling the story in a cohort or something a few years ago and I just broke down I was like wow this is bad this was really terrible because I, I really thought that that's what I deserved that's what that's what's supposed to happen I did something bad this is what I get that's excessive this is totally additional punishment on top of everything else. 
and it's permanent. Mm-hmm. It's not like I can't function, but these are things that I, I'm going to carry with me forever. And and I have to work on it daily to, to remind myself that's not, that's not okay. And that's not normal. And how many years were you in the state, California state prison? Only five. Only five. So. Why do you say only five? <laughs> only five. Five feels, five sounds, I mean, I guess compared to what the threat at the initially was, but five years in a state prison is, I don't know, it's significant in my eyes. Well, I felt, um, see, I still feel like I should have done more, you know, mm-hmm. um, everybody I know with a similar case is still there. Um, and then all, all my partners, they did life and a half. Uh, that's why I knew when I came home, I felt this strange and alien after five years. What must it be like for somebody who's done 15, 20, 30? That's why I, I started this whole thing is because I, I felt like I had to learn how to live on this planet all over again. I felt like I really came home as an alien. So I can't imagine how awkward and foreign everything must feel after an extended period of time. I mean, I went to Starbucks and I didn't know how to order a coffee because the list was so long. I just kind of wigged out and I thought, oh, how am I going to prevent this from happening to other people? We got to get some life skills, coping tools, partners some buddies to make sure people are prepared for this because that could potentially it it seems like something so minute but that could throw somebody completely into a a downward spiral and it was just coffee Mm, and cause them and then cause them to re-enter is that what you mean mm -hmm, mm -hmm, right flip out get high go back because it, it it's have you seen Shawshank Redemption it's like when that little man gets out Mm -hmm. and he just the heat, there's no place for him out here. So, and there's so many people, so many women that have done a long time that are getting ready to come home. And it just feels like there's not a, a, a special place for them to, to be able to plug in, to have some thread of familiarity that keeps them sane, makes them feel comfortable, keeps them from running out of Starbucks. <laughs> uh, because they can't order a coffee. Um, one of my, it was so embarrassing. When I first came home, I went to Chipotle. Somebody took me to Chipotle and said, you're going to love it here. And as soon as I walked in, there's stainless steel walls and there's stainless steel right. tables. Oh, wow. And I was like, <laughs> I couldn't breathe because it felt like I was in line at the chow hall. And I said, what am I doing? I just got left here. I just left here. I, I couldn't breathe. I had to run out and it wasn't funny. It it felt, it was humiliating, you know? How long after um, you said that you've, you've been out for eight years. Is that right? So how, how long after did you start doing the work that you're doing? Like what was the integration time? Did you start a family? You know, what kind of, what was your life leading um, what happened? As soon as I got out, I maintained relationships. I maintained contact with a lot of people. And I thought this is, this is just, you know, the promises I kept, I'll just continue to be a friend. 
to women and I who were still, do you mean for women who were still incarcerated? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that I promise. Would be like phone calls and writing mm-hmm. letters and visits and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. No financial support. Um, mm-hmm. All the calls. If there was something that uh, I had a friend who's, mom died and there was nobody to tell her so stuff like that um and then I really thought I was going to hit the ground running and start a family and get married and start being a normal person and I got into another (laughs) another abusive relationship and that was that consumed almost five years so I think that was additional grooming for for the part I'm playing now it, it kind of stunned me for an additional five years. So I really feel like it was a 10 year sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, after, after I broke free of that one, not too long after that, that's when SB 132 uh, passed. And in addition to my regular letters and, and phone calls, I started getting like cries for help. Well, like, what's going to happen? There's men coming here. And I, uh, like, are they serious? Is this what's happening? So I, I didn't, at first I, I tried, I, I approached it with caution thinking maybe it was, you know, maybe people were overreacting. Maybe uh, Let me do some research and figure out what's really going on. And I read the bill and they were serious. <laughs> the way it was written, it's so recklessly inclusive. I couldn't believe it. There was, there's no limit basically as to who qualifies to use this. And I had, I'm so late on the pickup. <laughs> I didn't know how controversial women's rights are. I was thinking this is, I'm going to be able to walk to, into Diane Feinstein's office or, uh, you know, she's going to be very upset about this. <laughs> and no, they, they weren't upset. They, they were sponsors and supporters of this progressive bill. But that's about as far as my research went. And I figured I was going to get full support from everybody in the community. And I didn't. I wasn't familiar with all this new language. And I'm, I told him from the beginning, I'm not going to relearn how to talk to cater to this new ideology. I don't think that's necessary. I can respect you as a person without having to bend and use these new terms and speak this new language. This isn't my language. That wasn't really met with open arms. It kind of, it burned some bridges for me. I didn't realize how, how involved several of the organizations are, were in this, even ones that, that were established as, as programs that assist incarcerated women. They even have women in their their name, their organization name. But now they're more, far more inclusive. Not they, it's not exclusively for women. So my immediate thought was, well, I'm going to have to incorporate so that I can have something that is exclusively for women, and make sure that there is something that I just cater to women. And I was told that's probably not legal anymore. I don't think you can do that. I don't think it's okay in California to do exclusive things. Well, I've done worse, so I think it'll it'll be fine. That's what I told. That's what I told him. I, I think think we'll be okay. Um, I was actually told in in a in a cohort that the stance I was taking was very dangerous, and that I was putting myself in 
um, grave danger by mm. taking the stance that I was choosing. And I didn't care. I tried to express in the nicest way possible, the women that I was incarcerated with are in grave danger. Their mental health is in grave danger. So until that changes, I'll, I have no problem with physically being in grave danger too. And that's when myself and one of my partners removed ourselves from, from that and decided it was time to do our own thing. And it's, it's our own thing. It's a thing now. It's a thing. And it's a good thing. It's, it's just learning how to navigate and be diplomatic and without bending. Because I know that if we, if there's certain things we bend on, it's, it's going to bend on everything. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of the things that I do don't make sense to everybody right now, but I know they will. They, they will. If they don't see it now, they're going to see the bigger picture at some point. And I know it's frustrating in the meantime, <laughs> because they probably think I'm, they do think I'm, I'm crazy in a lot of levels, but I, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna bend. We're not gonna entertain this stuff. We're not gonna use this language. We're gonna, like I said, we're we're gonna make sure we're respecting everybody as a person, as a human being. But as far as reality is, you're not gonna take that from us. There's only one truth. There's only one reality, and they pump that into you a lot in prison. This is my truth. Speak your truth. Well, how many truths are there? I don't think there's more than one. There's just one because there's the truth and then everything outside of that truth is a lie so i'm going to stick with that and i know again it's not popular but that's that's mm -hmm. what it is I've, mm -hmm. I've spent the last almost 40 years trying to be popular and it hasn't worked out really well so i'm going to be okay with being the bad guy it's, it's fine the bad lady it's fine <laughs> so yeah i i hear that with the and I'm guilty of, you know, the speak your truth thing. I think I'm, I'm coming out of it. But yeah, it, it is it is unpopular. I, I, I totally agree to obviously we know firsthand to say that men can't become women and, and women can't become men. And um, that's just how it is. It's not. It's even strange that it could be offensive. It's like saying like time is offensive, like time is just time. It's not. Mm -hmm it's not trying to offend you, you know, and there are circumstances where our time, obviously prison is a great, you know, example of this where, where time, you know, is, is frozen and it can feel frozen and, and time is invaluable, but it's not time hurting us. It's right. It's just time. Time is just doing its thing, like fighting, you know, fighting what is it's, it's a really interesting place to be in. I do it. I do it myself. I feel at the effect of time, you know, who doesn't, you know, running out of time, not enough time, mm -hmm. all the things. But so what, what does woman to woman focus on? You know, what, what are the services that you're giving to women who are, who are newly out? Well, our main, our main thing when we started was supposed to be the, <laughs> Reentry services, assisting with housing. The goal was to be providing housing by this point. Um, I got so involved in SB 132, and I felt like this was a 
a priority over everything because people were, it was an immediate problem that needed an immediate extinguishing. So that has, for me, become like my baby. Um, but that wasn't the intention. We are supposed to be focusing on the reentry services because we want to make sure that we're offering those things with dignity. That's something that's missing in a lot of things. And I don't think it's necessarily intentional. It just happens. And want to make sure we're providing housing and the services that come along with it in a way that, that we would have felt comfortable with. I'm not knocking anybody else's services, but I don't, I don't want to make as much money as I can by putting as many people as possible into a living space. That's the kind of situation we just came out of. Mm. So it is taking a little bit longer to build because I'm picky, you know, um, but my partners are, are actively figuring out how to navigate their way in that arena. Uh, we, we are in talks about a house in LA and we want it to be like you're coming home. I want to build a relationship with everybody that we're going to be working with. If we don't already have one, I want to know what your favorite color is. You know, what, what, what's your favorite song? What, what's your favorite snack? I want to know all those things so that it's ready. So it's, it's not just, it's not just a, a sell in the free world. I want it to be a really personal, personal thing. Cause it's, it's about building relationships. It's not, it's not numbers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it can't be. Otherwise it's just perpetuating the problem and continuing what, what they've already done to us, you know? I want to make sure we do it right and we do it right the first time. This isn't practice. This isn't, you know, there's no practice games. This is real life. We have to make sure we know what we're doing and we do it well. And we do it independent because there's a lot of there's a lot of places we could reach out to, but there's a lot of places we can't really reach out to without compromising where we stand on certain issues. Because it's so controversial. Yeah. Is it? I mean, even saying that we're Christian. That's, that's a huge problem. You know, that's so offensive. <laughs> okay. But it's not offensive to everybody. So those are the people we're going to focus on. And we got to have blinders on. I, I, I'm totally guilty of it. I'll get sidetracked so bad on one messed up article or one misquote and I'll let it really get in my brain. And I can't, I have to be laser focused and remember that that's, that's, nothing but a distraction it's just taken away from mm-hmm. what we're supposed to be doing and energy and time are limited so they have to be invested correctly at this point in california do you know of any other re-entry nonprofits that uphold biological reality no that's unbelievable so from your understanding, your research so far, woman to woman, your nonprofit is the only reentry nonprofit for women that centers women in the state of California. I think we're the only ones that's that say that in the forefront. I think um, there's programs that that are awesome, and they've helped. I've seen them help friends. I've gone, and I feel comfortable, and I feel safe. But that's not something that they can talk about. That's not something that that they can um, put in their brochure. There's, it's too risky. It's too controversial. 
because of our, the, where their funding is coming from? Is that why nobody wants to speak out, take mm-hmm. a firm stand? And where, where, so where are most of these reentry programs, um, these nonprofits being, like, where's the money coming from? There's federal grants. There's, um, there's George Soros. <laughs> there's, um, if you really follow, if you jump down that rabbit hole and go all the way to the point of no return, that's usually where you end up. And I wish that I could say that wasn't true, but that's usually where it leads directly back to. That's why I had said in the beginning, I don't even want money. I'll just, we'll just stay broke. They can stay here. I don't know. (laughs) We'll figure it out because I don't ever want to. I know there's going to be other routes. There's going to be other routes. Other doors are going to open. Opportunities are going to arise that are going to allow us to continue doing this without having to, to have strings attached and owe people favors. I don't, I don't want to think that if we take this $600,000, we're going to have to, you know, stand behind this and support this. Mm -mm. I don't want to put, I don't want to put my, my partners through that. I don't want to go through that. I don't don't want want to compromise. Yeah. Compromise your values. No, I've, we've compromised so much already. Just we've compromised for years, forever in relationships and during incarceration, everything. So I feel now that we're out here and we don't have to, while we're still free, technically, I'm going to do my best to make sure there, that that's not, that's not something we have to commit to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not to get real creative, but mm-hmm. it's okay. Well, I want to, I want to get more into, you know, what the reality of, you know, women, you know, friends of yours who are, you know, currently incarcerated, who are coming in contact with these men, because as you mentioned, you like your, your time, this, you know, wasn't, this wasn't a thing yet. SB 132 wasn't a thing yet. So what can you share with people about what the reality of what's going on? It's incredibly, I think, unique situation to be well, to have such an unpopular stance, to be running a nonprofit like you're running and to be getting these messages out. So I feel really lucky to, to just have you as, the, as a, a translator, as a voice for, for really what the hell is going on. It's all very mysterious to me. Mm-hmm. It's, you know? It's, it, well, even when I was there in, I think, 2010, um, Richard Masbrook, who's a convicted serial rapist, transferred on a security measure and put on a different yard, but in the same prison I was in. And I called home every single day saying, what is going on here? Is this on the news? This is crazy. There's, there's an actual, there's a biological man here. And, you know, my family was like, get out of here. Are you kidding me? I said, no, there's, there's a, this is happening. And I just, it was, it was another layer to the whole devaluing of women. You know, you really don't matter. We're going to do whatever we want to you here. Here you go. So upon integration, they put Cherie now, Cherie in a single cell. 
And you have to remember, in the world's largest prison in the world, in Chowchilla, it's an eight-man, it's an eight-person cell. So this isn't like a, a little TV two-man cell. This is eight people in one living space, four bunk beds, eight lockers, a toilet, a shower, two sinks, and a door. And it's cramped. It's cramped with, even you could have, you know, the tiniest of all women in there and it's still cramped. You're allowed six square feet of property at any given time. So that tells you how, how compact you are. Uh, and the living space you, you share in the bunk areas is really tight. It's like three feet from, from your bed. That's, that's what you're working with. And that's where you've got to get ready for work, change your clothes. Um, everything happens in that area. But now it's obviously more restricted. People are, are having it. I have to get ready in the bathroom or I have to put my clothes on in the shower uh, because the, the lack of privacy is even more pronounced now. And when I was there during that incident in 2010, I believe, it was only how many, it took a couple weeks before if everything finally came to a head, this person was trying to run program on everybody. In women's prison, the culture is entire, completely different from men's prison. There isn't the separation by uh, race or by gangs. It's women are blended from you know, DUIs to serial killers, everybody's together and it's never been an issue. And that's interesting. Oh, I didn't know that. That's mm -hmm. always been the case. So, mm -hmm. so just to, re to repeat that. So in men's prisons, they're separated by typically by race, gang, gang and like level of offense. Security levels one through four are all separated for security reasons. And in uh, like the prison I was in, it's, it's, levels one through four so i mean considering my offense i i would be on the higher end so somebody who's there for stealing infamil for their baby is likely to be my bunkie so a serial rapist could easily be mm -hmm. the infamil burglars bunkie too uh and women's made it work it's never really been mm -hmm an issue that was the biggest concern i had when this started being implemented was that there wasn't going to be that separation the people coming from men's prison are coming from this different culture from a different program they all run one program the guys over here are going to wake up at 5 a.m and do their workout and then they go to chow and then they they, they have a regimen that's very militant <laughs> in women's prison there's 32 rooms in a unit and there's probably 32 different programs in the unit because every room is run entirely different. There's a, a, a different family or person leading each room. So there is no normality. There's no regulation. There's actually been some people that have transferred back to men's prison because of the lack of structure. Uh, and there's no politics like they have. It's relational it's hormonal it's definitely not their kind of politics i and i brought that up too that nobody's paying attention to the cultural differences here this is like we're seriously going into another another planet back to the privacy thing you know um 
restroom where the toilet area is, there's a regular door, but it has a cutout from here to here and then a cutout from the knees down. There's big holes. So there's just this midsection space that's, that's covered so that when you use the toilet, that's the only thing that you're not seeing. If a police officer walks by, they're just not seeing your bottom on a toilet. Uh, same with the shower. It's the same design, same cutouts. So if you're taller than like 5'8", you're going to see all of that. If you're brushing your teeth at the sink, you're, you get full, full sight of everything going on in the showers. And I got a few letters just saying this, this guy is sitting outside of the, uh, on the floor in front of the, the, the toilet, you know, <gasps> intentionally. Mm, there's a bunk called one, one up and one low. We call them the freeway. It's the worst. Nobody wants to live on the freeway. There's no privacy. There's no wall. It's the worst. It's, we call it the transient space. That's where you put people that are going to be short-termers, people that you mm. want to get out. Uh, it's not the best area. If, horrible. But this is where this person wanted to live because it's here and the toilet and the shower are here. I couldn't even wrap my mind around having to live like that. That's the room that actually had to start making the sleeping schedules because nobody wanted to ever have a minute where somebody wasn't on watch because it was so uncomfortable. Uh, and the person would stay up all night pacing and just freaking everybody out. So that was that. That was what for, that was one of the first things that made me think this. Mm-mm. And when was that? When did you, when did you first get wind of that? Approximately about like, May. I want to say about May. Of, May of 2021. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think January is when they started to um, implement that bill. And by, by May, when a lot of the transfers started to come in and it's, it's still, it's, it's not a huge number, but it's been enough to make a major impact and the privileges that the privileged group that it's created is is a huge problem in CDCRU, at least for women. I don't know how it is for men, but at least for women, you can't get a bed move without bending over backwards, without begging, without I had to I was getting beat in one of my rooms. And in order to get out of that room, I had to I had to like have a, another long-termer, a, a very long-termer, well-respected long-termer talk to the housing staff in her unit to pull me out of that unit. And I mean, the stuff I had to listen to, I couldn't, I was like, I, I think I'll just stay in here and get beat. This is really degrading. This, this officer said, well, what, what are you? What kind of Chinese are you? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm Japanese. He said, how about on your knees? And I was like, huh? Because I didn't, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm slow on the pickup. So he said it a couple more times and I just, I got all sissified and I, I just ran out because I was humiliated. You know, I, I just wanted to get out of that unit. When you say, when you say sissified, do you mean that he forced oral sex on you? Oh, to no, rant? no, this, what, he what just. You, when but that happens. I mean, that does, that's not, that is, that is not something that doesn't ever happen. It happens. But he, he, I cried, you know, I, I just, that I, I don't want to say I bitched out. I, 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 I ranked out. I, I, I couldn't laugh about it. I couldn't, 
I didn't have a snappy comeback. I just got my feelings hurt and ran out. And it was a couple more weeks before I got that bed move, but I, I did eventually get it. But there are people that will go to those lengths to get moved, which is why it was so incredibly offensive to learn that if you're a transfer on SD-132, you, your bed moves, your requests will be honored and your best interest and sense of uh, your own assessment of the situation is priority. If for any reason you're denied a, a bed move, they have to submit an explanation to you in writing within, I think, 24 hours, and nobody's going to write anything down. They're just going to give you the bed move. I couldn't believe it because everybody, every woman who's been incarcerated knows it's, it's a huge deal to have to, you have to wait until the right uh, officers are working in the unit you're in and, and the unit that you want to move into because you have to make sure they're both going to approve it. And um, you have to have their favorite person ask them for it and mm -hmm. advocate for what a wonderful person you are in order to get in there or show them your boobs. You have to do something outlandish. So that was like a big old kick in the gut. Are you serious? Bed moves, free bed moves for all. And uh, they are really being honored. And on top of all that, they can say uh, that they want to be single-celled. They can move into a room that's, say, got waxed floors and it's immaculate and people have been working on it for 15 years and say, I feel safe in here. I don't feel safe with anybody else in here. They need to get out. That can happen too. Mm. So like best case for these men in a women's prison is or like best case for the women with the men in, in women's prison is that they get this room to themselves, a single cell, but then that still takes away that immaculate single cell from the woman who was in there. In San Francisco, this would probably be a million dollars a month. It's still an eight person cell. And in a prison that's operating, um, I think well over capacity, it seems very, it, it's absolutely ridiculous. It's at one point it was, I think, operating at 160%. Wow. So you're 160% still granting single cell status in eight person cells based on people's perception of their own safety, only if they transferred under SB 132. Because if it was a woman who said, I don't feel safe here, kick everybody out, they would tell her to, you know, kick rocks. It, 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 they'd laugh. I think it's definitely important that, that the public understands that transfers from men's prisons are not required to be on hormones or transitioning. They don't have to ever desire to transition or have any desire to ever not be a man um, because of the way the law is inclusive. There's heterosexual serial rapists who are totally qualified to request a transfer and it's being they're being granted because you can't be denied a transfer based on anything related mm -hmm. to your physical anatomy sexual orientation or um gender identity none of, none of that right so right it's not like blair white coming into your no or who's had oh. you know hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of surgery and hormones and manicures and makeup like you're you, you know like you're talking like a big dude with a beard and a penis that works and a penis that works. Yeah. It's 
it's not like orange is the new black. It's not, this is not the situation. Oh, like a Laverne Cox hairstylist yeah. type fun loving. Or, or woman who's being denied her hormones. No, no, this is not the case. This isn't the case at all. Wow. I had no idea. I mean, I used to watch that show and I had no idea that that was predictive programming. I mean, yes, very much so. It was so the soft entries into this, into all of this. It was conditioning everybody to be ready to sympathize when this, this dropped. And then if you think about it too, Laverne Cox took um, Chase Strangio from the ACLU, who's trans to, uh, I don't know, the, the, the Emmys or something. And this was, this was just all part of, of, of the plan. It was all part of the plan. And that's something that they say regularly to each other. Whenever, there's a, whenever any of the men see each other, they say, stick to the plan. How creepy is that? We don't know what the plan is, and it doesn't even matter if the plan is just, you know, to make sure you put your jelly on your bread before your peanut butter, but it's scary. You mean the guards, the prison guards say this to one another? The transfers. The tra- the male transfers say stick to the plan. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, I have no idea what that means. Nobody does. Oh, my God. Right. That's why I got to. St- I, I have to focus on getting as many people out and making yeah. sure there's a place for them, and 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 kind of shift gears because I can't necessarily make it better in there, but we yeah. can start yeah. pulling them out. Yeah. And then to make things even more interesting, if you're non-binary and you're a woman in women's prison, this law is supposed to include you as well. This law is supposed. This law is for non-binary, two-spirit, may who, anybody that that is in the gender variant umbrella and they don't have access to the law the same way somebody who is a man does if you're a woman who identifies as a man you're not going to get to use the benefits of this law the same way a man does they're going to continue to give you a hard time because well essentially you're a woman so i i really wanted to point that out too to 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 the lawmakers this is not a law that benefits anyone but men. This is a man's empowerment law. But the name, it's so, it's so, it's slick. It's disguised so well to think. And then also the way it's worded, um, you would think that this sector of people are being denied of respect, agency, and dignity, but that's not the case. No one has that. It's mm-hmm. not like, it, it's not something that their life is missing because of of their status nobody has that so it's it it was they knew what they were doing when they wrote it it's there's no way that that it was an innocent mistake this was completely intentional i i wish somebody would come along and prove me different but they can't wow and what is the official name of the bill i only know it as SB 132. What is the official? What is the slick name that they that they chose? It's the Transgender Respect Agency and Dignity Act. So you hear that, right? Wow. Right. The way it is implemented is this a man's law. This is for men. And there's two kinds of people in prison and they both got to be able to benefit from laws that are created. This isn't. That's why I, I don't understand how there's like 
female legislators, women who were able to read this, I'm sure they didn't just vote I and not read it first. They had to have read it. They, they had to have read it. I would think that'd be a requirement before you vote on things. Uh, but it, this took place all during that weird lockdown period where nobody was really paying attention to anything. Yeah. So maybe, maybe they didn't read it, but. Wow. That's unbelievable. I had no idea. Yeah. I didn't know the name. I didn't know. Wow. And that's, that's some organizations. They don't even refer to it as that because they, they are now starting to understand that's, that's not mm. they get down. That's not what it is. So some people will now see the implementation of SB 132 because it, it, it is misnamed. Yeah. They really try to capture you with the language. Mm hmm. Right. If this is a is this a law, if this is a law about respect and you're opposing it, then you must be disrespectful. You know, yeah. it's so messed up. You know, uh, obviously we are, you know, you're you're sharing all this and you're on my channel because we we see, you know, eye to eye on, you know, protecting women and girls. But, you know, I also wanted to talk about since we are in this other crisis, you know, with mandated vaccines and whatnot, um, I wanted to to kind of hear maybe your peak vaccine story um, as a as a as another fr a freedom lover over in California. Well, it was two thousand and nine. Uh, remember the swine flu, the H one N one. I was in prison, and I was new and. There was an outbreak. There was an outbreak in receiving because they were continuing to transfer people that were sick. And I was like, it's a flu. Well, nobody's going to die. I wasn't thinking that this was all part of the plan, you know. And they said we were going to get vaccinated. And I was like, I'm not getting anything from this place. This place is a Petri dish. This is a science project. And my housing staff said, if you don't get it, you're going to get a write-up for... Uh, refusing. And I said, well, I'm not refusing. I'm declining. I'm, I'm just declining. It's not a refusal. And he said, well, you better get in line or else you're going, you're going to get a write up. And it, I, it was my first year. So I wasn't in the know, didn't know he was just, you know, jerking my chain. He's been fired since. And I was, I got in line. I was actually, I think in line with one of my, one of the partners, I think was maybe a couple people behind me. And we got vaccinated. And there's a lot of us who've had like serious fertility issues since. Um, there's some of us, some girls that were in line that have had, you know, three, four kids since then, but not me and not my partner. I can't say for sure that it has anything to do with that, but I wouldn't be surprised. Um, that's when I knew that was good. I've never really been, I'm not an anti-vaxxer per se. I, I, I mean, I have all my other shots, but this, I'm not going to participate in something that's being forced by the government. Because in my experience, there's nothing that the government's ever forced on the people that has been beneficial to the people. And I don't know why everybody forgot about uh, the fact that they don't like us. They're not our friend. They don't want to do nice things for you or give us free stuff because they love us and want what's best for us. These are not nice people that are, you know, trying to do the greater good for the nation. This isn't it. I'm good. I mean, we've read 
so much stuff on it and that makes everything there's too many questions for me that are unanswered and once they are answered i'm even more straight on it i'm, mm. I'm I don't know how to explain fully to people everything they've ever forced upon us. Tuskegee was not that long ago. It was just a few years ago. Wake up. I mean, if, if they really cared, then then other stuff would be free too. They'd be, you know, airdropping insulin everywhere. This this would be something that they did regularly with, with vitamin D and, and orange juice. And that's not what they're doing. This is something else. This is an exercise in compliance. And I think that it has to take somebody who's really aware or somebody who's been incarcerated to know that it all starts with compliance. This is how they break you. This is how they know how far they can push you before they just push you in the oven. This is where it's, it's going. And I don't, I don't understand why there's not a harder pushback on this. Because what are they on? Four shots now? You got to get like four? So... I'm, I mean, eventually you gotta, you're going to have to get one before you leave your house. You cannot go in the grocery store. You haven't had your morning, uh, you know, booster compliance shot. I heard they're working on a pill actually now too. And I'm right. I think, yeah, it was the prevention pill. And I bet you it's just ivermectin or something. I knew as soon as, as, everybody started getting all hyphy about like hydroxychloroquine and everything. I was going to mm -hmm. have to call the connect in Mexico and get a bunch because it was only a matter of time before the FDA refused to um, let it be over the counter. Mm. But that's when I, I was done when that happened in prison. And um, I just saw people lining up like, and we didn't know there wasn't that uh, informed consent. Nobody was telling us anything. And even if it was just a, a vaccine, just a regular flu shot or something, there still mm -hmm. wasn't that, that re respect for, for human beings. Let me know what's going inside. Let me know. I, I, don't, I don't know if this is excessive, but it's so rapey. It's such uh, a, a volatile. It's, it's, it's violating us. And it's not, I'm never going to be okay with that. I'm never going to be okay with, with it at all. And I see people doing it to their babies and kids. I don't get it. I don't get it. Well, speaking of, you mentioned rape and like the rape culture around, you know, what's going on with the mandated, you know, vaccines. Um, I think it was in a reel you shared where you had said that there are condom dispensers now in women's prisons. Can you, can you speak on that? Yeah. Um, in the smaller women's prison in Southern California, staff installed condom dispensers and condoms have been readily available in men's prison to help suppress the transmission of HIV for years, but never once in as long as I have been aware of anything, has there ever been condoms available in women's prison? When the women, they were able to get me the memo. I have the memo and they really put condom dispensers in the med line. There's, there's lines because they have everybody on meds. Uh, so everybody goes to med line and there's a dispenser. Of course, you know, at first it was funny. Let's take them all out. Let's make, let's have a water balloon fight. But then the reality of it set in. This is this is telling these people to rape safe, right? 
because if there's no consensual sex in CDCR, what do you need these condoms for? What are you allowed to have three on your person at any given time for? What are you giving women that don't come with penises condoms for? There's, there's no other reason besides, you know, providing the tools for men to, you're giving them permission. You're giving them permission. That too totally would freak me out. I was like, how, how much more can you degrade people? How much less than zero can you make people feel? I mean, that was, that was hurtful. There was some teary-eyed phone calls. And then not long after that, in the medical buildings, they put posters up that gave the options that inmates have when they get pregnant. Posters, like, like so casually put up, let's say, option number one, plan B pill. Option number two, abortion. Option number three, assignment of a caseworker and uh, training in how to adopt out. Wow. Uh, so it was just an admission that this was going to happen. And that was one of the biggest things that, that so many people voiced. What are you going to do with all these babies? Because there's people with, th- this is, when you put men and women together, babies are going to get made. Yeah. They, they you know, one of them sent a, a letter and she said, what are they going to do? Are they going to let the child molesters and the rapists have a daycare center? What are they, what are they doing? What, what would they have a contract with Planned Parenthood? What's going on here? And it's, 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 again, it's, it's treating women as less than human. It's, it's chattel. It's, it's some form of currency. It's not, this isn't, this is so much deeper than it seems. It's, 100% part of the whole erasure of of women, just us even in in words, in language, in everything. And they do a great job of it as soon as we get there. We wear the same clothes, all all inmates, male, female, whatever. You're all wearing the same thing. You're all a number. You're nothing. So it's, it's, it's all part of this process, all part of this science experiment. And I know once... Once they perfected it in there, that's when it's it's really going to get scary out here. That's when they're going to know this is how far we can push before it's it's nobody cares and they just let mm. it happen. Well, Amy, I so appreciate all your your time and and work and you know I think for women who are just kind of who've had their minds blown open, you know, from from this episode, like what. What can women do? I mean, obviously, I know you have a, a great website and a donation link, but what would be your advice to someone who's hearing this, you know, who wants to get involved? I think talking about it is super important. Having intimate conversations with people just like we had is vital, making sure even if it's one at a time, that's what it's going to take because I can stand on a soapbox and talk about it for an hour, but it's not the same as me having a one-on-one connection and telling somebody, this is reality, this is what's happening, this is what's gonna happen out here, this is what's happening out here. And we have to educate each other because I think the reason why it was able to slide by under the radar is because nobody knows. So Mm -hmm. awareness is, is vital. There's people still that have no idea this is going on. Or, you know, the people still that'll be like, well, where's the facts? 
where's the statistics? Help me make some statistics. I have a whole, and the whole process we have to go through in order to get the statistics, scientific one, out of, of CDCR so that we can have our numbers. Uh, help me make a, um, a survey about sexual assault and, and uh, mental abuse in the system so that we can get our numbers up and we can come correct with, with hard numbers behind these experiences. Because when I share these stories and they're horrible, if their numbers aren't behind them, we aren't taken seriously. And I wish that wasn't true, but it is. And um, I need I, I need to do that in in great proportions. I need like four thousand surveys sent out so we can mm. get some some good stuff to be able to to competitively do this because this is a war. This is this is just one of many battles that we're going to fight. And I think for people to recognize women to recognize that this is this is war. This is seriously war against women to stop stop thinking that it's not going to happen in your lifetime or your generation it's happening now and this is the battle for our existence we keep talking that's what that's what's going to take for us to keep talking keep talking because eventually they're going to have to hear us and if enough of us continue to talk there's going to be no way to block it out anymore because it's going to be coming from everywhere yeah do you feel like in this past year there's been a shift do you do you think that consciousness is raising on this issue slowly i think so or not even slowly i think it's happening in the right time because it's it's i'm not patient i'm very impatient but i know that it's not on my timeline it's it's in the right timeline and uh i i think it's building momentum and it's it's just it's gonna happen and we're gonna blow the lid off right at that peak time when it's gonna be the most effective I just have to keep my eyes open and and be ready. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support my work, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To stay in the loop for my latest coaching programs, hypnosis sessions, free resource guides, and more, follow me on Instagram at whosebodyisit and visit my website whosebodyisit.com.